my first order form was a Google survey. It just said, hey, what's your address? How many do you want? Because I didn't believe that people would want to pay $10 for a brownie. And even when my Instagram community polled, yes, I was still just like, this isn't real. I don't believe you. Here's my Venmo. Here's an order form. I had $5,000 in my Venmo in five days. And that's what convinced me that perhaps there is a market for this. This is Evolve CPG's Brands for a Better World podcast, featuring purpose-driven leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. Thanks to you, our listeners, this podcast is now ranked in the top 10% of all podcasts globally. Let's not stop there, though. You can help us reach more people by taking a moment to leave us a rating or review, which is critical for podcast algorithms and by sharing your favorite episodes with your network. The more people we reach, the more good we can bring about in this world. If you're working in the industry, you can also join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On this episode, we're speaking with Lex Evans, founder, CEO, and chef of Lexington Bakes, about his experience building brands at Johnson & Johnson, why he finally decided to start selling his monumentally epic baked goods, how they consistently sell out even at $40 a box, his commitment to consciously sourced ingredients, and much more. Hi, I'm Lex Evan, founder and CEO of Lexington Bakes. We make consciously baked luxury treats with natural and ethically sourced ingredients those treats right now include brownies, cookies, and blondies. And something that might confuse people at first is that our cookies are square. They are not brownies. They are cookies. It's a hot debate that I love to have with people. (laughs) We'll get into that later, I guess, then is the format of the cookie and whether or not that counts. But yeah, (laughs) that's funny that that's a hot debate. Love it. That's cool. So thanks for coming on the show. I've been, you know, following what you're doing for a little while on LinkedIn and just keep seeing you crush it in sales and doing a great job with your branding and stuff. So I figured it would be a fun time to just jump on and talk about how things have been going. So before we dive more into Lexington Bakes, I'd love to talk a little bit about your background. So we're, you know, both fellow designers in the CPG space. So I'm sure we can nerd out on that stuff for a long time. But what brought you into CPG in the first place? Because it seems like since day one in your career, you've been in CPG in some way. So how did that happen? And what got you excited about CPG? I think the most succinct way to answer that question is divine intervention. I don't think it was a conscious decision. When I was 20, graduated from college and went to my first role, I kind of at the time was so insecure as a designer because I went to school for journalism first and then realized that I wanted to design the magazine, not only write the articles. So after my freshman year, I transferred and went to design school, but the people who go to design school have spent their entire high school career and their lives before that preparing for that. So to be a transfer design student, I'm like at the bottom of the barrel. So I had a lot to prove So yeah, when I graduated, surprisingly enough, I was at the top of my class. I had received our design excellence award for print design at a time when print design was dying. So that was cool. 
<laughs> my dream job out of college would have been a design agency. I liked the idea of working on different projects. I liked that throughout my college career, but I got an insane offer with a very high salary. So I took it as a recent college grad who had student loans to pay off and other ambitions. And for the first few years, I begrudgingly called it a trap. And in hindsight, it sort of was. It wasn't the most glamorous design job, but it paid ridiculously well. And it helped me achieve a lot of other goals. So I don't consider it a trap anymore. I consider it an opportunity to explore all of my other interests, which have led me to where I am today. So I wouldn't be here without that path. That's interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people coming out of college just need to take whatever they can get job-wise. You know, like you've got all these maybe student loans or you're anxious to get started and you got all of a sudden you're an independent adult and you got to pay all your rent and your bills and other things. So you kind of take whatever jobs you can get. And sometimes, like you said, that can be a trap. I've seen a lot of people take a job that ends up being in like, let's just say production or something like that. And then they have a hard time breaking back into the more creative side of the field, like working at an agency or something. But to your point, it doesn't have to be a trap. Like it can take you off in a new career that you didn't expect. Or as long as you're intentional about professional development and developing yourself, you can always still move in different directions. Like I've seen so many people change direction, whether they're a designer or any other kind of profession, like change direction in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. Like there's always still an opportunity to, to kind of lean a little bit more where you want to go or jump into a different field. And, you know, maybe you just have to get a new certificate or do some personal projects or whatever it is to like get opportunities to move in that direction. But, but I love how you took what could have been a quote unquote trap and ended up using it as an opportunity to do the things you're passionate about, which is really cool. Yeah. And to add some more clarity to what that role was, it was for a contract manufacturer producing wet wipes. So I had the opportunity to work with every major retailer from Target to Walmart, CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens. Like I had that experience right out of college. That's what threw me into the world of CPG. And because I excelled at the production side, I started to take away more of the creative work that was previously outsourced because the internal design team at a contract manufacturer isn't really trying to win design awards. They're trying to win contract business. And the people they're trying to win that business from have their own design teams and agencies and everything. So to be able to prove myself from the ground up and like, not only can I do print production and mechanical files, but I'm also a creative designer and I can leverage those strengths to help my company pitch this contract manufacturing business or opportunities to their customers. So that's kind of how I inched my way out of that trap situation. And to your point, I had to do a lot of personal projects to show my range of being a designer because agencies and, and studios and even other internal design teams see that you've done production for brands that have established looks and style guides. So it's kind of a risk to hire someone at an agency where you're constantly pitching new work and working on new brands that hasn't really proven themselves to be capable of creating something out of nothing. So I'm proud that I got out of there, but I can't minimize the effort. It took a long time and it took a lot of work, but ultimately that's what made me a better designer. 
That's awesome. Yeah. I think whether you're in an agency or in-house or wherever else, it's about the amount of effort that you put into it is what you get out of it. Like with everything too, like volunteer roles or relationships or whatever, like however much you put into it is what you're going to get back. And I think what's great about what you're talking about is anyone who's listening, if you feel like you're quote unquote stuck in a certain job or a certain role or something like that, all it takes, and I'm not saying it's easy, but all it takes is to put the extra effort in to push yourself, to push your portfolio, to push your work, to push your writing, like whatever it is that you practice. Just do some stuff on the side and follow your passions and experiment and play and take those classes and do whatever you need to and opportunities will come. Like I've got so many friends who've completely changed their career just because they were feeling a little burnt out and decided to do like a, I'm going to draw a new piece of type every day on and post it to Instagram because that's going to fire me up a little bit more. And then all of a sudden they found that they love typography and decided to quit their job and go get a master's degree in like design and typography. And then all these doors open up and they'll probably end up publishing a book and doing all this other kind of stuff just because they decided, (laughs) just because they decided to like do some extra side projects. Yeah. Jessica Hitch is a, is a good example of that, but there's so many opportunities out there. It's just about putting the work in instead of phoning it in and just doing the minimum that the job requires. You put a little extra love into your career path or your side hustle or whatever, and and opportunities will present themselves. So good for you. (laughs) So one thing I noticed is looking at your LinkedIn profile is that whether you started as like a intern or a, you know, young designer or something like that, in positions or as a designer in general, you always somehow manage to bubble up into leadership roles as well, which that's not for everybody. You know, some people just want to keep doing design and for 40 years, just geek out on being the best designer ever. And some people do naturally kind of lean into more leadership roles. So for you, that must be the case since that kept happening to you as you kept bubbling up into more of a design management type position. So Where do you feel like that kind of leadership instinct came from for you? I think it's a little bit of nature and nurture. So growing up, I'm Greek. I have a big Greek family, just like the movie. My grandmother and then my mom were the ones to host the big parties every year. And I feel like I've inherited that trait to want to be the facilitator and the organizer and the leader and watching them anticipate and then take care of everyone's needs at these parties. Like, that has been instilled in me since I was so young to the point where I was the one to rally all the kids in the neighborhood together to play football in the street or to go to the park or to go over a little bit. Right. So I think this is just who I am or who I've become really early on and how that translates to the workplace is I just, I want to understand how things work. I want to understand what our objectives are and I want to help us all accomplish them. And quite often, established leadership within projects isn't there. You're put on a team and the team is set to accomplish this goal. So naturally, someone has to emerge as the ringleader in that team. No one is designated as a leader on these teams because your intentions are to collaborate. And having a leader within the team of collaboration is a little tricky because You're not always the leader. Like as a good leader, you have to recognize when it's your turn to step aside and let someone else lead for the moment whose strengths are better suited for the task at hand. Nice. That's a good note. Yeah. So to some degree, it sounded like maybe when there's a void, 
of leadership, like just nobody's stepped up or it wasn't assigned or something like that, you tend to naturally lean in and help kind of rally the troops around whatever the goals are. But you're also humble enough to step aside when it's not the right time for you to take a lead or maybe you encourage other people to take a lead and kind of help them nurture their own skills too. Yes. So there's a fine line between being an emerging leader and being an arrogant leader. <laughs> and yeah. I have been labeled arrogant once before and it will not happen again. Oh, really? Now I need to know <laughs> a little bit about that story. If you're willing to share, what was the context of that? This was recent. I was added to a project halfway through. So when I came in, I didn't want to be the person to take over. I wasn't brought in to take over, to be a leader. I was brought in to share my expertise. I've We haven't talked about this yet, but after that first role of college, I worked for Johnson & Johnson. I've been there for 10 years and I've worked on beauty and skincare for 10 years. So I have extensive experience designing for those brands, researching those consumers. And the team I was brought on to were fairly new to the category. They've been with J&J for a long time. Like I adore them. I felt privileged to get to work with them. So I didn't want to come in and say, here's how you have to do it, right? I came in with an approach of, I'm here to just hear your ideas and kind of share what I know into those ideas. But that was received as me being absent from the team because I wasn't offering too much off the bat. And then on the opposite end of that, I overcompensated and perhaps took a little bit too much of a leadership role, but it was a new situation for me that I haven't had to manage before. So it was tricky to find my grounding in that situation and find the right balance of how to properly communicate that some ideas for people who have not been in a category for so long may seem, I don't know what the right word is. <laughs> Trying to find the PC word. <laughs> nice. But yeah, at some point I was labeled arrogant because I came in too hot at some point. And that's not a term that I want to have. But when you're creating a new business from scratch and you're a startup founder, arrogance is kind of something you have to embrace because like, who am I to think that my brownies are better than every other brownie that is on the market. That is extremely arrogant to think that I can create a brand out of thin air as someone who has been a designer for 15 years and have, has only been self-taught pastry chef for seven to think that I can exceed above these brands that have been around for decades creating these products. And I come in and say, I'm going to do it better. That is extremely arrogant. And I've learned to embrace that term in that role, but I don't want to be arrogant in a team role. Right now, I'm still a business company team of one, and I'm only arrogant to myself. So that's fine. That's an interesting spin there. The arrogance as a benefit for entrepreneurism. And like, I totally resonate when you're saying that, but I'm wondering if it's like a choice of words there by which I mean, is it arrogance or is it confidence? And I think Maybe I could argue for both, but like, let's just say, yes, when you're starting a company and you have to go out there and sell it, you can't be like, yeah, our brownies are okay. Or, yeah, you know, like, you know, there's plenty of good brownies. Ours are one of them. You know, like you got to go in there and be like, we're doing things completely different. Nobody else has taken this angle. Our ingredients are the best. 
like we have the best recipes, our products are amazingly packaged and whatever. You've got to have that confidence in what you're selling, which maybe comes across as arrogance. Maybe the arrogance part is like in the particular delivery or something like that. And maybe it's actually just in the eye of the receiver. Like maybe the people on that project you were working on labeled you as arrogant because maybe not the way you were delivering your information, which it could have been that, but it could have just been the way they're receiving it. Maybe they were feeling insecure and therefore your confidence felt arrogant instead of just confident. I don't know. There's kind of like a fine nuance between those words, I suppose, but I totally hear what you're saying. I feel like to be an entrepreneur is tough enough already. Like you kind of have to be crazy to go all in on a business and to think your stuff is good enough to make it past the incredibly difficult odds of surviving in a CPG business and so on and so forth. So there is value to that for sure. Yes. So when it comes to pitching or talking to other people about the brand, I will choose the term confidence. But when it comes to your internal monologue, arrogance is the term, right? There is an overwhelming amount of self-doubt, imposter syndrome that runs rampant in my mind all day long. Arrogance is how I get over that. I have to tell myself that, yes, I am better than all these people. I don't think I am better than all these people. I just have a perspective on what I'm creating. And I need that kind of insane confidence, which is arrogance, to fuel me to go up and pitch to people and say, hey, put my brownies on shelf next to those other brownies you've been selling for 20 years, have had no issue, and people still come back and buy How do you go to retailers and tell them you're the one that they've been waiting for all along for decades to be the one to improve this thing that doesn't have a problem right now? (laughs) Yeah, fixing a problem that's not broken in their eyes, you know. Right. That's interesting. I love the way you talk about it as the arrogance helps overcome the imposter syndrome and stuff. It's almost like arrogance is your hype man (laughs) when you're getting ready to go into a pitch or something like that. You do need the person in your corner that is telling you that like you totally got this, like your shit's way better than any other brownies on the market and all this other kind of stuff. And it's almost like a voice, (laughs) like one of the, you know, voices talking on your shoulder or something like that is that arrogant voice that just kind of pumps you up before the battle, before the pitch. That's a fun idea. I have thought about this term for a year nonstop. (laughs) Seriously? (laughs) I am someone who who excels in everything that I do. So to be labeled that term is not hitting my mark on who I am. So I struggled for such a long time to come to terms with that to describe me because I can't negate the experience of other people of me. So that is true to those people. I was arrogant in that moment. I can't say I'm not arrogant. I was. So how do you come to terms and accept that and kind of leverage that as a strength? And that's where I've landed with my internal therapy sessions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always say that all strengths can also be weaknesses in certain situations and all weaknesses can also be strengths in certain situations. So yeah, if arrogance is one of your strengths and one of your weaknesses, it can be both and it just depends on how you apply it. And the fact that you use it to pump yourself up for pitches and to overcome some of the negative self-talk I think is brilliant. With that said, you also mentioned, you know, your time at Johnson & Johnson. So I'd love to hear some of the highlights of working there because like 10 years working at a 
big company like that that has so many brands that you've got to have accumulated so much amazing experience and maybe some big wins on projects you worked on or challenges you overcame or lessons learned or whatever. So can you tell us maybe, I don't know, a few highlights from your 10 years there? I know that's probably hard to wrap it all up, but maybe whatever that comes to your mind first. I feel like I can write a book about this, but those 10 years have been the most transformative for my design talents, my interpersonal relationship talents, kind of, I have grown so much because those 10 years were my 20s. I started working at J&J when I was 23 or 24. I was still discovering who I was and, and growing. And we can just get right into the highlights because I will keep rambling. So <laughs> I have redesigned Avino and Clean and Clear and Neutrogena. And like, I grew up with these brands, like the impact of growing up and watching these commercials and then being able to touch those products and redesign the brand and think about where the brand should go. It's not just about, we need a prettier package, right? I work on design and brand strategy. So where should these brands go? How do you adjust brands that have been around for 50 years, I think more, to be relevant today with the other brands that are on shelf? Because the landscape is constantly changing for some of these brands like Clean & Clear, they have a very limited window for the consumer that they're targeting. So how do you then attract a younger generation and become a relevant brand for them? Like those are the challenges that I have loved to work on over my time at J&J. And then in terms of stretching my design skills and talents, packaging design was the thing I wanted to do least out of college. I wanted to work in magazines. I wanted to do photo shoots. I wanted to work in art direction and and then somehow also write articles, which I've learned is not something someone does. But, you know, I took all that kind of push and struggle to get out of my last role and I brought it to J&J to do things that I wasn't scoped to do. So I primarily worked on packaging design globally, which is a whole nother like crazy thing to accomplish, to design for different regions and understand consumers in different regions and different cultural interpretations of ingredients that you put on front of pack. Like a lychee product in one region can look entirely different than a lychee product in another because you have to dig into what do the people in that region see when they think of lychee? Is it a photo? Is it an illustration? What type of illustration? What part of the lychee? Is it the inner part? Is it a closed lychee? Is it an open lychee? Am I saying lychee right? Is it lychee? Lychee? I think it's lychee. Anyway, I always I hear lychee, yeah. <laughs> Some of my stretch projects at J&J are what helped me grow the most. And it's when I redesigned Avino, I also spent four weeks outside of work redesigning the Avino website and pitched it to all my business partners after we finalized the packaging design not just to be like, oh my God, look what I can do. I'm so great. It was a learning experience to say, hey, I know we're only scoped to touch the packaging, but the brand is not just the packaging. These experiences transcend the packaging, right? It's when you go to the Avino website, what should that be? If you're primarily a CPG brand that has its majority of volume in retail stores, what role does the website play for the consumer for that brand? Because if it's not set up to be an e-commerce website, but you design it to look like an e-commerce website, what are the goals there? So how might we design that website 
to be kind of like an esthetician or a dermatologist that can help people when they're on shelf. I know this is going to be a little bit of contentious item to bring up, but whether it's a QR code or just an app on your phone or just going to the Avena website, how do you design that website to be an assistant in the retail environment to help people navigate your shelf and your portfolio of like 50 plus products? Like which lotion is right for me? There are 15 Avena lotions. Which one do I pick? Nice. So that's a cool idea of just kind of like putting some of your own time. It wasn't part of the brief. It wasn't part of the challenge, but you felt it was necessary. So you spend your own time, it sounded like, to put together a pitch and bring it to them so they can be thinking more holistically about this brand update. That's amazing. How did that pitch go, though? I, I assume it went well since we're sitting here talking about it, but how did they receive it? It went very well with my internal design leadership team. They appreciated the effort and it synchronized with their goals to acquire more of this type of work for our design organization, because a lot of the work outside of packaging was being directed to external agencies. And it can get very disconnected when you have one design team designing packaging and then all these other regional design teams and agencies designing websites for different regions. And there's a disconnect between the design strategy for the packaging and the design strategy for the website and the design strategy for your comms and your commercials and your ads. There was no common thread. And over the last couple of years, that's been one of the goals with the internal design team is how do we show the value of having a common thread across all of creative for the brand, not just packaging? Yeah, I love that. I've seen so many disconnects, like you, even little things like you buy a a bag of, I think it was kettle chips or something. And then they have all these impact stats in the back of their bag. And then you're like, oh, this is cool. I want to learn more about it. You go to the website and you can't find <laughs> anything about it on the website. And then instead, the website's got some completely different strategy of, hey, let, here's all the fun ways you could pair your chips with different cocktails or beers. And it's like, okay, that's an interesting, cool experiment or experience for the online port. But like, why are you not connecting your packaging to your website in any way, shape or form? Like, why aren't you continuing to tell those stories? Or, you know, same thing with social media. You see so many things on social media and you click through and then it dumps you into this no man's land on the website and you don't get to kind of continue that journey, you know, like, but to think more holistically about the brands, I think is really important, but it, it is rare. Like a lot of people just isolate each of those projects and then forget to think about how it rolls out and all the other touch points. I will add one final note to that, which is I've learned to appreciate enormous mega brands because it is not easy to design for the entire planet. <laughs> yeah. Like our studio, I think at some point had 200 people and it still wasn't enough people to work on all these brands globally on every touch point. Like we needed those 200 people just to do the small scope that we had. So while ideally it'd be great to have a common thread, sometimes it's not feasible when you have a global company. You just don't have the resources and time to spend on that. And you need to, to designate that work to the regions because the regions also know better than you do. Like, who am I to be the one to say, this is what the brand should look like in EMEA or Asia or, or Africa, right? We need people who live in that region, who understand the consumers in that region to tell you hey, thanks for the global strategy, but we need to adjust that strategy for our region to be successful here. So it's both. And it's not to say that people didn't think there should have been a common thread. It's just they didn't know how to do it within the limitations. I totally get the 
things need to be handled on a regional basis. And I was going to actually follow up and ask, like, in your experience with some of these brands, how different would a package or a brand or whatever be in different regions? Like you were mentioning subtleties of the photo of a lychee pizza fruit or nut or whatever. I I forget whether it's called a lychee nut and then the fruits on the inside. But anyway, so just the photo of the lychee could change, but I could also see it being copywriting's changing. Sometimes a a brand name needs to change because that word means something completely different in these other languages. Sometimes it's colors change. Sometimes there's like trademark issues. You couldn't get that trademark across all these different countries or whatever. But in your experience working on some of these global brands, how much did change from region to region? And I'm getting the, it seems that the headquarters, quote unquote, weren't usually the ones driving those changes. Maybe you developed the main system in whatever country or region headquarters is in, and then you hand it off to the other teams who work in other regions. Is that how it works? So it's changed over the years to different strategies. Initially, it was the global design office designed the packaging for the globe. And I've worked on not just bilingual packaging, but like five languages on a single package. Accomplishing that is insane. But the common thread for a long time was our packaging is going to be the same all over the planet. We'll just adjust for additional languages. But it's one way to kind of reduce your cost for designing the same product in like, I don't know how many regions or markets, right? And the goal was if you travel the world, like you need to be able to recognize the product, not just in your region, but in other regions. Some of those strategies probably have changed now to kind of release some of those guardrails, because if it doesn't work in the region and it has to follow the global standard, then how are you going to achieve your goals, your sales goals? So I think for some, like it also varies by brand too. Like you said, some brands have the trademark globally, some don't. So the name has to be different. Yeah. I'm not sure how much I can share about that. So it's probably just the answer is it depends, right? It depends yeah, on absolutely. how global the brand is. It depends on what translates and what doesn't translate and stuff. But so those big gigantic companies that are in, you know, 50 countries or something like that, they've got their work cut out for them to adapt it for all those countries. In some places, like you're talking about five languages on a package, I know in like Europe, that's pretty common, right? Where we complain, uh, uh, my agency or, you know, people we work with complain about having to do Canadian packaging because it's like two languages and it's, that's hard enough. But like five languages is insane. Like that's super difficult to fit in, but it all just depends on the different regions. Like I'd say for the US, Canada, which is a lot of our, the brands we work on are usually in both of those countries, sometimes some other countries as well, but just the culturally like US and Canada are close enough that usually the visual language doesn't change that much. It's going to be more of the call outs on the package. So like in Canada, people might think protein is more important. Whereas in the US, maybe the US consumers think fiber is more important or, you know, there'll be like nuances like that, that'll change the call outs. But then it's also just like small things like certifier kind of logos will be different or maybe small changes in copy, like the word flavor is spelled different in the US versus Canada and so on and so forth. So I think there's like little nuanced things like that, but I've never done something so globally holistic where it has to work in like 30 different countries and you're evaluating like the image and the brand name and all those kind of things across the globe. So that's got to be extremely complicated. I can totally hear hear what you're saying. Extremely complicated, but also extremely rewarding. I was just in Italy in August and like, it was amazing to go into some stores and be like, Hey, I designed that. Like I've done that in the U S and I'm like, cool. Like mom, look, I'm at target. I've designed all these, the entire shelf for the sunscreen. 
but now it's like we're in Italy. And it's like, oh yeah, I designed that too. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, because I think a lot of times, like in my limited experience of more global brand stuff, we may have done the base US design or the base Canadian design or something like that. And then some other firm does the European stuff or the South American stuff or whatever. Like they handle more of those kind of like nuanced multi-language, all that kind of stuff. So I could totally see how exciting it would be not to just see something that you kind of touched in another country, but it's literally the one that you physically worked on for months or something like that. That'd be cool. So with your Johnson and Johnson experience and I think the contract manufacturer before that, you were saying was like wipes or something like that. So you've been in kind of like personal care for a long time. And then you decided to go and launch a food company. (laughs) So first off, you know, full-time job or whatever, your hands are full, decided you wanted to follow this kind of passion and launch your own company, which is crazy enough. But then you decided to shift into food. So where did this inspiration come from? Why did you decide to do this? I've started several companies before this. And I started baking seven or eight years ago now. Baking was always the one thing I said I would never turn into a business because I loved it so much. And the few instances where people had asked me to cater in the past have just turned to like work. And I was like, this isn't fun anymore. Like baking a thousand macarons in my New York kitchen over three weekends and hand painting half of them gold on both sides. I was like, we're done. I'm not doing this anymore. So I wanted to keep it for myself. And then last year, November, my Instagram community saw my brownies that I posted for myself and started DMing me to order them. And I was like, I'm sorry for the confusion. I'm not selling these. I'm not I'm not starting another company. We're done. I joke and say that this is the company I never wanted to start. And it's true. It's not to say I'm not passionate about it because I love working on it. And I love that people love the bakes that I create. But this has been a story of pull from day one. This is the brand I've been called to create and launch, not the one I necessarily wanted to launch, but I am extremely proud of it. And it's just food brings us together. And the fact that this brand has brought me together with so many people, not just friends and family now, it's been a full year of Lexington Bakes. And I've got to meet the most incredible people in the food and beverage world. But yeah, to your point, like I spent 15 years in beauty CPG and now to start a food brand, it's like, well, that's different. Yeah, it is. I mean, you have the CPG experience, so you understand things like package design and retailers and branding and, you know, priorities of salespeople. You know, like you've got a lot of experience in that. So a lot of that knowledge and all those skills translate. But it is also interesting that with all that experience in personal care, you didn't decide to launch your own Lexington skincare or, or beard cream or, you know, like something that that was in your category of expertise. With skincare, I've researched it for 10 years. I've researched it by using it myself. Like my skin has never been better. And it's because I've worked in skincare for 10 years. There's nothing I need to improve. Like I've got great skincare. I can recommend great skincare regimens to other people. I know the science. Like I work with our R&D teams at J&J to understand the science, the molecular level science of how skincare products work. There's nothing for me to improve. But when it comes to baked goods, like I'm also kind of like obsessed with my fitness and my weight and body, everything. And my latest, most successful run at that was counting my macros. So I limit my sugar intake to 40 grams a day. And 
I've got everything under control. And the one day a week that I can eat anything I want, like it has to be epic to hold me over for a week of not eating dessert. And like, this is not to shade anyone. <laughs> like this quality of brownie just didn't exist before because everyone is so focused on trying to make dessert an everyday thing. And for me, dessert is not an everyday thing. I want it to be monumental, epic flavor that like I look forward to every Saturday, not something that's less sweet and kind of healthy and has vitamins in it. Like I take a daily supplement. I have athletic greens that I drink every day. I don't need vitamins in my dessert. I just need my dessert to be dessert. And that's what I made. That's awesome. It's kind of like the opposite of like the bro dough kind of story. You just listen to that <laughs> Did you? Yeah, it's like she loved, you know, her treats, but also was super into fitness and performance and whatever. So wanted a treat that she could eat more regularly. But for you, it's the opposite. It's like, I'm only going to have a dessert once a week. So that dessert should blow my mind. <laughs> like hold me well, over. And now me it's excited. also gotten to the point where the nutrition facts of my brownies are such that I can have a brownie every day and still be within my macros. So oh, nice. I'm not saying that my stuff is loaded with sugar. It's not. I'm still conscious of like the amount of ingredients and like I developed the recipes with that in mind. Sugar will never be the first ingredient in anything I make. There's still a conscious decision to develop healthier recipes. I'm just not pushing them over the edge where they're no longer dessert, right? Like I'm not making snacks. I don't want you to snack on these all day long, every day. But if it fits your macros and your diet and your nutritional needs and, and it fits within your allergies, like, yeah, you can have it every day if you manage your diet however suits you. Like I've eliminated sugar from all my beverages so that I can have sugar at the end of the day. And it, I'm not saying like I will only eat my dessert. I still eat my friends' CPG food brands every day too. Like there are other people making epic desserts. I'm not the only one. I'm not that arrogant. <laughs> my ears are the best brownies and cookies and blondies right <laughs> for that occasion if you're looking for something once a week that is going to like hold you over and be epic and have crazy flavor and deliver on all these things that's the product for you if you're looking for something that you can snack on every day that is balanced with protein and fiber and everything else well this isn't that you can add this to that mix during your week but yeah I still shop those other better for you products during the week too. Like I can't go a full week without sugar. I need some other stuff to kind of get me through it. But yeah, nice. I think I've contradicted so, myself, but I don't know. It's just brownie. <laughs> it, it's for those just who haven't yet, and hopefully they'll go, go to your website, buy some product soon. But like for those who haven't seen your product yet or bought your product or tried your product, let's describe it a little bit. You already talked about the fact that it's um, cookies that come in a square and that's a hot debate, but Beyond that, I know you've got brownies, blondies, cookies at the moment. What makes your products so epic? And I know part of it's just premium ingredients, but so talk a little bit about your choice of ingredients, but also what is it? I mean, obviously like a great recipe, just the way you bake it, et cetera, like sell us on it. Okay. So first Pull things out first, your arrogance. <laughs> my biggest pet peeve is when bakeries and brands say that they make their product with the best ingredients on the planet. And then you find out that it's palm oil and chocolate liqueur. And I'm like, well, that's one way to define best ingredients. So I set out to define what that means for my brand. So for Lexington Bakes, 
The best ingredients are natural, ethically sourced with kindness and respect for people and the planet. And you can interpret that however you want. But for me, it's sourcing the best vanilla extract, the best chocolate that doesn't have fake or cheap ingredients to accomplish the best brownie. So I source from companies that respect the planet, that invest back into the communities from which they harvest, companies that are B Corp certified, fair trade, organic ingredients. Let's eliminate pesticides from our desserts and our diets. And that's how I define the best ingredients. And it's, of course, subjective. Someone can come and say, well, well, that chocolate isn't the best for this reason. I'm like, okay, well, at least I've defined it on my website and I'm not hiding behind this ambiguous term of best ingredients. I'm all about honesty and transparency. I don't want to trick you into buying my product. I just want to communicate my perspective on what I'm making. To your other point, the brownie recipe I've had for years, I've adapted and like adjusted. But when I created or created the brand and launched the brownie, I had to launch a website. This whole brand started on Instagram. Before there was a product, before there was a website, my first order form was a Google survey. They just said, hey, what's your address? How many do you want? Because I didn't believe that people would want to pay $10 for a brownie. And even when my Instagram community polled, yes, I was still just like, this isn't real. I don't believe you. Here's my Venmo. Here's an order form. I had $5,000 in my Venmo in five days. And that's what convinced me that perhaps there is a market for this. So back to what I was saying earlier, I had the brownie and then I launched the website and I'm like, well, this looks stupid. There's one square product on this website. So I launched the chocolate chip cookie and sticking to my brand, which is very fair and square, the cookies are square and there's a sustainability impact behind a square cookie. I can get 45 ounce cookies on a tray because they're square. If I were to make 45 ounce round or circular cookies, I haven't done the math, but I'm sure it would be five or six times or maybe more the trays that you need to bake them because you also need to space them out. So I'm reducing energy in the oven. I'm reducing water used to clean the pans. I'm reducing space used to store and ship the cookies. And I also have a mission to reduce food waste and make our food more efficient. So these cookies are designed to be freezer stable and it's not easy to accomplish that with a round cookie because your edges are drier and crispier. There's not enough moisture in there to hold up in the freezer well, but with a square cookie, it's very evenly distributed and balanced where the center is very moist and gooey and delicious and kind of like cookie dough. And the top and bottom is crispy and crunchy. And when you put that in the freezer, there's enough moisture in there to kind of retain the freshness. So when you take it out, right now the shelf life in the freezer is six months and I've personally had some that have been in the freezer for longer and I'm totally fine. So we'll get that shelf life in the freezer longer. But the consistent feedback from all of my customers is like, I can't believe this was frozen and like made weeks or months ago. It arrived at my doorstep at room temperature and it tastes like you just made it. There's a lot of strategy that goes into the recipe development to accomplish that. It's easier for a brownie, but then to do that for a cookie and then to do it for a blondie as well. So I have so much fun developing these recipes and I'm so proud that like what I'm baking and selling is my creation. Wow. That's really cool. I hadn't looked 
into the reason for the square yet. So that was a fun story to pull out that maybe it started as just because your brownies were square or whatever to like keep it in, in line with your fair and square brand or whatever. But the fact that it also has all those sustainability benefits and functional benefits and stuff as well is, I think, a super cool part of the story that I'm not sure how much of that you tell through the brand yet, but I think that's pretty compelling information as well. I haven't figured out that part yet because if you think about the iPhone, <laughs> if you think about all the functionality and the features and the talking points about the iPhone today versus when it first came out, like it is a lot and you have to tell the story over a period of time to consumers so you don't overwhelm them and confuse them. And like you have to focus on what is the first key driver to purchase this product. And as they interact and engage with your brand over time, you can share more of these reasons. And it's they become these little like Easter eggs of like, oh my God, I love this brand, but now I love it so much more. Yeah, absolutely. I always say a brand is not like a photo or a still image or whatever. It's more like a movie. And in fact, probably more like a trilogy or something. It's something that unveils over time and you're going on a journey with your customers and you don't have to tell them everything at once. In fact, you shouldn't. You just tell them just enough to take that next step with you. And then you can tell them a little more and then you can tell them a little more and just kind of bring them on that journey with you. And, and you know, hopefully your brand is about benefiting people. So like you get to watch them transform and then they get to watch you and your brand transform too, as it grows and evolves. So, so I, I like that angle that you were just talking about there. So you also mentioned a moment ago that like <laughs> you didn't believe people were going to pay $10 a brownie. And I imagine a lot of people, entrepreneurs or just people in general would be in that same spot and would hesitate to launch something like this. So I could totally understand why you started with the Google form sheet. We're going to wait and see if people actually pay for you or pay you. With that said, all small brands, for the most part, need to start selling at a premium because you don't have the giant supply chains to get costs down and so on and so forth. And especially brands like yours who are trying to choose better ingredients that aren't the cheap version of whatever you're trying to sell, right? So like if you're a more ethos or whatever driven company, your ingredients are going to cost more. And then as a small company, because you don't have scale, it's going to cost more. So it's like double the difficulty of being on shelf or, you know, being compared to some mainstream product that's going to be $3 and yours is $10. With that said, there's also all this pricing psychology out there around more premium products still sell just fine, even if they're really not that much better. The premium brand or the idea that it's leveled up in experience or says something about the consumer who buys it, like fancy fashion brands or something like that, those brands sell maybe even better because they're priced high, right? So there's this interesting kind of like balance of most companies coming to market wanting to be on shelf at not too much of a premium over the other products which means they have to compromise on something, either their margins or their ingredients or their packaging or their marketing. You know, there's something they have to compromise on to get that price down. But what I love about your story is that you said, fuck it, <laughs> like, I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to give you the best damn ingredients I can find. I'm going to give you an amazing recipe. I'm going to give you this beautiful brand. You just went for it and it's working. Like when you go into a retailer you're selling a crazy amounts of product, even as a $10 brownie or a $40 box of a four pack of brownies. On your website, it seems like whenever you launch a new batch of something, it's sold out pretty much instantly. So with that said, like, 
what do you feel like is the secret to your success so far? Is it like the premium pricing strategy is getting people interested, but then the product delivers so well on quality that they're like, screw it, I'm going to come back. I don't care if this is a $10 brownie, I'm going to buy these every week or You know, I guess I'll stop there and say, what do you feel like is making this work so well in a way that I think most people would be afraid to build a business around this premium level of uh, product? Yep. I will try to touch on all those points. (laughs) That was Uh, a lot. Sorry. I I will preface this entire segment by saying I didn't want to do this because I knew (laughs) it would be a hurdle. So when I communicated the quality of ingredients that I was using to my Instagram, like I'm on my Instagram stories every day. It's literally like having a one-on-one friend conversation with like hundreds of people on my stories, but I didn't want to do this because like I knew it'd be hard and I'm like, no one's going to pay for this. I know the quality of ingredients because I've studied them. I've researched them. Like, is this going to translate to people caring? Do people even care that the bakeries don't tell what ingredients they're using? Well, it turns out they do. And when the product delivers the expectation, they come back because the response is like, you have this expectation of what a brownie is going to taste like based on what's available in the market or what you've made previously. And I don't think a lot of people make brownies from scratch. You get a box mix. That's where I first, like when I was younger, my mom would make Betty Crocker brownies and they were great. It wasn't until I made these that I realized, holy, like this is an epic flavor that I've never had before. So when it comes to copywriting for the site too, like I do that and I base that all in the feedback that I get from people and unexpectedly surprising is the best way to describe my products. You think you know what a birthday cake blondie is going to taste like, but I've made mine without any birthday cake flavoring. Like it took me 10 different recipes over the course of two or three weeks, but I nailed that. And it tastes so good. And the feedback is, I've never had anything like this. Like I've had a birthday cake flavored something before, but it doesn't taste like this. Like what is in this? And then you explain the ingredients and they're like, okay, yeah, here, just take all my money. Give me the money. (laughs) But something that is really important to me about this, and we've seen brands over the last few years, there's one very prominent one in LA that has come up with the idea of a luxury cookie and it's luxury for the sake of being luxury. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be this hollow, empty luxury brand because I say it's luxury. When I say luxury brownies, the luxury is natural ingredients. There's something I can stand behind and kind of say, yeah, it's $10. I can show you all the math and all the ingredients I'm buying. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm giving you this creation. If you try and go and buy all those ingredients yourself in the quantities that you have to buy on shelf, like it's going to cost you a lot more than $10 a brownie to make those yourself. You talked about margins. I spent a really long time sourcing these ingredients so that I don't have to charge $20 a brownie to start and get to that $10 price point in the future. I got that future price point now. Like even when I scale significantly larger, the margins aren't going to get wildly more lucrative. It's really about honesty and fairness and respect and caring about people. So I'm not trying to trick anyone. I'm not trying to like overprice something for the sake of making you think it's luxury. Like this is a luxury product for these reasons. There's this logical justification for people to spend $10 on this brownie. 
And that comes from my brand strategy background. Like you have to substantiate your claims. Yeah. So you talked about how you already did a bunch of work sourcing the ingredients to even get it down to $10 from maybe what could have been $20 easily. Did you have a dollar amount in your mind or was that just where they ended up once you kind of did all your sourcing? Like, was there like a a psychological or some sort of idea behind the $10 brownie versus like, let's just say a $12 brownie or a $9 brownie? Like, was that a strategy or is that just where it ended up? So I had initially priced them at $8 when I had my little Instagram bake sale, if you want to call it that. But at the time it was $8 for four brownies and then $15 shipping. And I was like, well, this is dumb because like the shipping is a big hurdle. And then I had people buying them in person for $32 for a box versus $50 for a box. I'm like, well, that doesn't seem fair. Like someone's not getting the right thing. So I'm like, how do I balance this relationship better? And then when I started to factor in retail, because retail wasn't something I thought would be possible from the very beginning, knowing how expensive these are. So when you factor in the retail margin to your price, like I had to raise the price in order for this to work at retail. And I couldn't have something at retail that was $10 and then $8 on my website. So I harmonized all of this, I guess, logistics or operational and everything costs. And I'm like, all right, well, let's reduce the shipping from 15 to 10 Let's put that price into the brownie and put some of the shipping cost into the cost of the brownie too. Like not just the ingredients. There's other costs that go into selling a product. And I raised it and nobody batted an eye and they're like, oh, cool. I'm paying less in shipping. Like this is great. I'm still paying the same price. Like I'm not charging more by increasing the price of the brownie. I'm offsetting it by reducing the price of shipping. So like you pay $10 shipping, but sometimes it costs me $15 or $20 to ship. And I'm like, that's fine. Cause in LA, some people pick it up and they don't pay any shipping. So that offsets each other, right? So there's a balancing act of all of this. And then to your point, there is a consumer perception of price going back to brand strategy. How do you communicate these luxury ingredients to people at shelf when you're not there to talk about it, when you're not on a website with like paragraphs of copy to explain it? Well, price plays a good factor in that when everything else is priced at five or six or seven dollars, the ten dollar price point is going to make you stop and say, what the hell is in this that it's ten dollars? And then you'll pick it up and you'll see on the back of pack all the high quality ingredients and brands listed. This like radical transparency, ingredient transparency that I've got planned for the brand. But if it was an eight dollar brownie and it was only a dollar more than the next most expensive thing, you would just say, well, that's expensive and I'll just get the $7 one. It doesn't trigger in your mind to stop and ask why. Yeah. That's actually started answering. One of my questions was going to be around how you're being so successful in retail because online or through Instagram, people are hearing your story. They're reading about the product. They have some idea why it's more expensive, but I haven't maybe seen all of your retail packaging, but the bits that I've seen looks pretty minimal. Like your brand is on the more modern, minimal, sophisticated, you know, premium looking brand. Therefore, it doesn't have tons of marketing claims popping off of it or whatever, as far as I could tell. So that price is part of how you're communicating, right? So to what you were just saying, if you had a $7 brownie and that minimum, minimal kind of modern design, it might not have worked quite as well because people would just look at it and be like, oh, it's just some minimal cool brownie but like nothing special about it but because it was ten dollars and looked sophisticated then people probably immediately said oh there's something 
interesting, unique kind of experiential or something about that brownie. And let me give it a try. Yes. And I want to just reiterate that it's not $10 primarily for that reason. It's still $10 because that's how you make the margins work to have an operational yeah, business. It's not a made up number, but yeah, yeah. Right. But it helps to communicate that. And if you break down the price per ounce, it's not the most expensive thing on shelf. Everything else on shelf is considered a snack. It's 2.5 ounces. I have a five ounce brownie. It's twice the size of everything else, but it's not twice the cost because some of those 2.5 ounce products are $6. So if you double that, my brownie should be 12, but I'm not there to just sell expensive things. Like you're buying a five ounce brownie, you're using less packaging than if you were to buy two 2.5 ounce products. There's still a sustainability conscious decision there to say, I'm not going to make smaller things and use more packaging. I'm going to make a bigger brownie. It's something you can savor and kind of enjoy and, and have more of. But again, to the strategy of communicating that, the price point for the ingredients and the quality. And also I've worked for 15 years on packages that had so many claims. And I'm just like, I cannot deal with, like, who is reading these claims on shelf with 50 other products? I don't. So just remove the claims. The packaging is clear. You know exactly what you're getting. I don't hide behind a Photoshopped image on my package. Like I can't tell you the amount of times I've opened a package, an opaque package with a beautiful photo and the product inside is so like, like garbage, yeah. wet and like oil is secreting out of it. And it's just, that's not what you sold me. That's not a great consumer experience. That doesn't build trust. My packaging is clear. So you know exactly what you're getting. If you're disappointed after that, like that's on me, but I'm not tricking you into buying this. You can see exactly what you're getting. Yeah, that's cool. Um, the transparent packaging, whatever you can, like a window or something speaks volumes, right? Because to your point, people, while the beautiful food shots or whatever that are highly stylized and definitely not real look delicious, you're going to have a disconnect when somebody opens that package and sees a hot pile of garbage in the package in the bag or the box or whatever, instead of the beautiful thing that they thought they were getting. So because your product is already beautiful, just being transparent about it is, is really smart. Yeah. I also love that you can hold up the squares and see what's inside them on the sides. It's not just the front that you can see, like you can literally see every part of the product that you're going to get. Yeah, that's cool. And then you touched on the size too, which is interesting. Like, I don't know if everyone does, but I for sure, when I'm shopping, I don't just look at the total price. I look at the price per ounce because sure, this other brand over here might be $4 more, but you get more with it, right? And in the end, it's actually a better deal or same deal or something like that. So I don't know if everyone does that. I haven't looked at the research there, but that makes a lot of sense. So it's like not that your product is twice as much as anyone else's. It's actually relatively fairly priced compared to everything else. It's just a bigger brownie. But one thing that that sparked in me is, again, so many brands are so afraid of being more expensive than some other product on shelf that they often will reduce the size of their product to try to get in line with that, right? Even if they have to be a slightly smaller product than others on the shelf in order to get in a more comparable price range. But again, you went divergent there and you just said screw it i'm gonna sell 
the big brownie and it'll look more expensive, but it'll be more worth it. So one question there is, do you feel like over time you might have to find yourself reducing the size of the product to like as supply chain cost of goods or whatever will go up to just try to keep that $10 brownie range? Or will you just say, this is the size of the brownie. If I have to increase the price of $12 later, I will. And then I guess the second question I was going to ask was, do you consider that five ounce brownie one serving or do you consider it like two servings? Like are people sharing them? Are people like eating half of it now, saving half of it for later? So here's where the arrogance comes in. Let's do it. (laughs) If this doesn't work at retail, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take away from the experience that I want to offer consumers to make something fit everything else that's on shelf. I want to bring something new to the shelf. One of my pitch phrases is that this is a decentralized iconic LA bakery. And the goal is that like, I'm not opening up a bake shop first. I'm crafting my recipes and products and I want them to be available in every grocery store because I don't want my consumers to experience having to wait on a hour or two hour long line for one bakery location to get this great baked good. I want it to be convenient, easily accessible. And this is the product I want to make. This is the size and dimensions. Like this is what feels great to me. Like the weight of that square unit justifies and feels, it makes you feel good about spending $10 on it. To your point, I do have a strategy in the future to offer a smaller size product, but it will not be the same product. It'll be slightly different. It's for a different experience or occasion. That five ounce brownie is four servings. I take it out of the bag. I cut it into fourths. I have four little squares and I'll keep it in the fridge and like, I'll have a bite now, maybe two now and two later. I don't eat the full brownie in one sitting unless it's my cheat day. In which case I have a brownie that is warmed in the oven with a scoop of vanilla ice cream on top and maybe some chocolate sprinkles and chocolate sauce. And that's where I'll eat the entire brownie. But like I'll buy a brownie or I have a brownie, I'll cut it into fours and like that can be a treat for two days or four days if I have one square a day. It depends. And people have all different answers to that question. I'm very engaged with my customers because they're still friends and family. I haven't done a lot to grow the DTC business because I got into retail in my third month in business. And that took up all my time and attention and resources. So my DTC customers are still the first like 200 people from my Instagram that ordered and they've come back to reorder and they love the product. And they tell me like this time I I ate the whole thing or this time I I cut it into fours and I shared it with friends or I bought a box of four brownies and turned it into 16 bites for this party. Yeah, that's cool. It kind of reminds me of there's a little... Amazing little chocolate shop in downtown Olympia called Encore Teas and Chocolate, I believe. But the owner was telling me recently that there is a $500 bar of chocolate that every time they launch it, it sells out instantly. But it's not just a bar of chocolate that's $500. When you get it, it comes in this gorgeous box. You open the box and there's like tissue paper and like a nice little note. You open that up and then there's gloves and little tweezers and four plates and like a little knife that you can cut it with and just they make it into a whole sharing experience so that it's you're not just buying an amazing handcrafted piece of chocolate that's unlike anything else you're ever going to get but they also bake the experience in there so i like the idea of that your brownies are you know a four serving kind of thing so you can indulge in this delicious treat and like just break it up and eat it over a course of a few days, or you can share it with friends or something else too. I think 
That's really cool. And I'm realizing that I've, I could keep geeking out. I've got so many other questions for you, but instead of turning this into a two-hour podcast, I realize I should probably <laughs> wrap it up and maybe we'll just have you on another time in the future. But So I guess the best wrap-up question would be, especially since it feels like you're doing something fairly divergent here with Lexington Bakes, what would your advice be for others interested in launching their own brand? Do it for the right reasons. I'm not in this to get rich off Lexington Bakes. I'm in this to serve high quality dessert to people who want it. So know your product, know your customer, and just over deliver on that customer experience. Don't worry about fitting into where you think your brand should go or should be. This is about you and your perspective and your impact on the planet. So build what you want to build, listen to some other people for advice, but like, don't allow that advice to derail what you're building because you will end up going to the wrong place. Nice. That's really great. I love it. Cool. So thank you for doing exactly that, (laughs) building something for the right reasons and over delivering on customer experience and showing people that you don't have to follow the quote unquote rules of business and jam your vision into that. You can just kind of like follow your heart and do things for the right reasons and it can work out. So I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to come and share what you're doing. And as a kind of organic, you know, better ingredients kind of geek myself, I appreciate the love in which you're putting into your products by making sure that you're being really careful about selecting your ingredients because I I feel like the food industry, I think it's so connected to everything else, like the climate change and the economy and so many other things. So if we could just make better ingredient choices or better food choices, we can have a ripple effect that'll really change the world. So I appreciate that you're putting your money where your mouth is there and, and choosing your ingredients with a lot of care. So thanks for that. And again, thanks for coming on the show and sharing your story. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome talking to you about all this stuff. And I love that I have someone else to geek out on it with nice yeah i'm here for any geek sessions you want (laughs) thanks for listening if you'd like to learn more about lex or his company visit lexingtonbakes.com subscribe to our podcast and youtube channel for more innovator interviews expert advice and leadership discussions if you like this episode leave a heart thumbs up or review and share it with your colleagues as an ever-evolving show we also love feedback so send us ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. And of course, if you work in the industry, come join our community at community.evolvecpg.com and we'll go further, faster, together.